Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. All right, to get us going today, uh, maybe make sure you actually know people's names at your table. That'd be a good first step. Uh, And then second, I'd like you to answer the following question at your table. And I'll give you two minutes. Probably won't be enough time, but you got two minutes. When was a time that you felt out of place? It could have been you were all set to go to a costume party that ended up not being a costume party. It could have been you were all set to go play hockey and your friends wanted to do curling. Something like you felt out of place. So surround your table in two minutes. When was a time you felt out of place or really different than everyone else? Two minutes, go. Twenty seconds. All right, wrap up your last thought there. All right, one of uh, one of the times I probably felt most out of place was when I was living in the country of Hungary out in Eastern Europe. Now, living there, I could pass off as a Hungarian as long as I did two things. One, if I kept my mouth shut, and then two, if I didn't wear gym shorts everywhere, which was a season of life in 20 Sky. Um, but living in Hungary, I definitely knew that I was different, mostly because I couldn't really understand what people or even advertisements were trying to tell me. Uh, but then Hungarian is difficult for Americans, and so I couldn't even speak it myself. 
But one of the strangest things that made me feel out of place living in Hungary was Christmas. So you see, traditionally in Hungary, a family will go get their Christmas tree on December 24th. They will then decorate it as a family together on the morning of the 25th. And then on the 26th, they will get rid of it. Okay, where I come from, as soon as Thanksgiving is over, which is not a Hungarian holiday in case you're wondering, uh, it's unofficially Christmas. You go out, you get your tree, you decorate it, and then you get to enjoy it for an entire month or perhaps longer depending on how lazy you are in January. And so my first year in Hungary, I did exactly that. I bought myself a fake Christmas tree. I was super excited. I put it up in my flat. I decorated it. And then I invited my adult uh, Bible study group from my Hungarian church over. And they walk in the door and they see it and they ask what is wrong with me. <laughs> because they're like, it's not Christmas. Why, are you, why do you have a tree? And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you decorate a tree for a whole month? Anyway, all right, so differences like that is fairly harmless. And yet it is still hard to be different, to be out of place. And for me, living in Hungary, it was really hard to make sense of life there because I grew up in Washington. It's frustrating even when the simple things don't seem to make sense. But how do you live in a world that is not only different, but actually destructively so? How do you face a world that not only does not make sense, but actually stands against what you believe to be good, right, and true. And how is this connected to a table? Today, we're going to be in a book called Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking at two of perhaps the strangest and most uncomfortable chapters in the entire Bible that don't talk about skin disease. And for added fun, you think I'm joking, uh, for added fun, uh, these chapters are also composed in ancient Hebrew poetry, and so we, we need to read them as, as poetry. Now, Isaiah's world was one of empires and conquest, and Judah, where Isaiah is serving as a prophet, is kind of in the crossroads between a bunch of world empires bent on domination. And so as you go throughout the book of Isaiah, you find the people of Judah facing invasion by the empires of Assyria and Babylon. You also have the old, old, old world empire of Egypt still lurking in the reeds. And then on the edges of your borders, you have lesser nations like Moab, Philistia, and Edom waiting to tear Jerusalem apart. And yet in the midst of all this danger, instead of trusting God, the people of Judah have abandoned him. They've instead adopted the ways of the world and have twisted their understanding of God to fit the gods of the powerful and ruthless nations around them because they think that that is going to get them through. In Isaiah 24 and 25, where we are going to be today, they actually, it comes on the hills, a very large section of oracles against the various nations around Judah. And this happens in chapters 13 through 23. And it's interesting that Jerusalem herself is actually part of all these judgments. But then having engaged all these nations separately, Isaiah is going to picture them all as a single city, representing all the whole of humanity. And he gives this city a unique name, which in Hebrew is the city of Tohu. And I... I think in doing this, Isaiah actually connects something both brilliant and horrifying. 
And it helps us understand not just the sad plight of a world apart from God, but also how we as the people of God are to live in such a world. And so fair warning, it is going to be an uncomfortable journey today. But I do promise that there is a table in the end and that it is a table worth waiting for. And before we wrestle with these chapters, I'm going to pray for us one more time because we're going to need it. Uh, Father, thank you again that we can gather together as your people, that we can worship you, and that you have given us your word uh, to understand more of who you are and your ways and the hope that we have in you. Would you speak through me this morning, help us to understand the message you have for us, and that we might be encouraged and challenged as people who claim your name and follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Isaiah 24, 1 through 13. Says, See, the Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for the master as for his servant, for the mistress as for her servant, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The joyful timbrels are stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All joyful sounds are banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when an olive tree is beaten, or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. Okay, I was not joking about it being uncomfortable today. Now, Isaiah begins this section by looking at where the world is leading, right? So he's just talked about all the various nations and the problems going on around them, but now he looks forward and says, where, where is the world going to go? And the image he gives us is not pretty, right? We have complete and utter devastation, affecting all spheres of public life and even the earth, the ground, the land itself. And the question that we should be wrestling with right now as readers of Isaiah is why is there such a horrifying vision? Isaiah gives three reasons. Right? People have defiled the earth through disobeying the laws, violating the statutes, and breaking the everlasting covenant. Now, we may be tempted to think that Isaiah is talking about Israel's covenant with God, which is unique, or the law that was given through the prophet Moses. However, whatever Isaiah is talking about has to be much more general because he's talking about the whole of humanity. So our understanding of the word law today when it comes to the Bible is fairly unhelpful first because we tend to think of it as judicial or a system of laws. And yet for ancient peoples, especially Hebrews, law was generally tied to wisdom. And so it's more about teaching and instruction. 
and even the five books of the Bible that we call the law, when you actually go through them, most of them are stories because the goal of that section is to instruct you about who God is and his ways. And so this law that Isaiah is likely referring to is kind of the rules by which the world works. And I'm not necessarily talking about scientific or the mechanics of creation, but more of like relationally in terms of identity, spiritually. To put it in some different language, what Isaiah is getting at first is that humanity has rejected reality. So that's the first thing. Second thing he points out is that humanity has violated the statutes. By statutes, he's referring to what God has established to be good, right, and true. And yet it's not just they have violated these things. The Hebrew word actually has this connotation of exchange. And so they've actually not only gone against what is good, but actually set something else up in its place. And like Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, humanity has continued to decide what is right and wrong, good and evil for itself and has dismissed what God has established to be good, right, and true. Now, the third thing Isaiah points out is that humanity has broken the everlasting covenant. And this phrase actually goes back again to Genesis, to Noah and the flood. He's probably referring to humanity's continued rejection of God's offer of communion or fellowship or relationship with him. And so to justify this horrifying vision, Isaiah's claim is that humanity has completely gone in its own way, rebelling against God, and this is leading to judgment and curse. And now he's going to switch focus to life in the city of the world. Because given the consequences of humanity apart from God, the question then is, well, is the life that humanity has gained apart from God actually worth it? So here's what I'd like you to do at your tables again. I want you to go over Isaiah 24, 7 through 13, and then discuss what life actually looks like in this city of the world. This time I'm going to give you three minutes. Again, it won't be nearly enough, but three minutes. What does life look like in this city? And for you who are online, feel free to give your answers in the chat.
Okay, 30 more seconds. Okay, again, still not a pretty picture. Right? Notice all the ways that I, Isaiah describes how joyless it is in this city. How it has the appearance of a festival, but it's not one of song, but of groaning. How it's one of drinking, but not celebrating. That it's a city seeking to distract itself from despair to medicate itself, to forget. And yet not only this, but it's a city of lonely people. Because everyone's locked away in their own houses as though they fear and distrust each other. And it's this picture of terror and anxiety. So the city of the world is a city frustrated, depressed, lonely, anxious, and afraid. I hope it sounds familiar. And yet there's something more going on here. And it's in the name of this city. See, the NIV, which we have up behind me, translates the city as the ruined city in verse 10. And the word can mean that in the context. But I think Isaiah is trying to get at something a little deeper than just that. See, the Hebrew word is tohu, which is like tofu, but not soy-based. And tohu is actually one of the first words that you come across in the Bible. So way back in Genesis 1, verse 2, the earth is described as being tohu vavohu, or formless and void. And so you can see the connection to it being empty or ruined. However, this isn't the first allusion that we have back to Genesis and creation in this chapter. right? Because Isaiah has centered humanity's rejection against God, its laws and his statutes and his covenant, back in creation. And so I think that is significant here because it underlines what is actually wrong with this city. I think that quite literally, I, I've tried to be poetic and I couldn't come up with a good word, but this city is literally the city of unmaking. It is the city of primordial chaos, right? Of the formless universe. It is a city that not just opposes the creator, but is actually against creation itself. Because in rejecting the creator, this city of Tohu does not understand the ways by which the world, people, humanity actually works. It has rejected what is truly good, right, and true, and it has cut itself off from the source of life and vitality in relationship with God. And so it's no wonder that the earth too actually withers and that the city can no longer find satisfaction in what the earth produces. And ultimately, such a city set against reality with no concept of good without the source of life, such a city is unsustainable. And I think that's Isaiah's image of this city being both desolate but having its gates broken down. Because such a way of life simply cannot work. That this city is actually a paradox falling apart. However, something surprising happens next. Because amidst this despair and devastation, 
Isaiah now hears something. This is starting back up, verse 14. He says, They raise their voices, they shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing, Glory to the righteous one. And so as the noise of this city slowly dies down, there's this remnant who's freed from the shackles of that city. And they sing a song that actually fills all of creation. And I wonder, actually, if this song they sing isn't something new, but something very, very old. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, pictures Narnia as being sung into existence. And you even have old dead Christians who talk about if God speaks, it actually must be music and song. Because how could God say anything that's flat? And so it gives me this picture that when ever since the beginning of the world, that there has been this melody of creation that has persisted for all time. And that though the, the noise of this city of Tohu has drowned it out, it has always continued nonetheless. And while the noise of the city fills just a city, this song actually pervades all of creation, despite the unmaking that this city tries to do. One of my favorite poems, I think, captures this, called God's Grandeur by George Manley Hopkins, and it's a short one. It goes like this. He says, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is barren now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe, bright wings. And yet, hearing this song actually doesn't bring Isaiah comfort. In fact, he breaks the vision to give his own response to it. Picking back up in 16, he says this, but I said, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me the treacherous betray, with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. I think what's going on is that Isaiah is still living in the city of Tohu. That he looks around and he sees the destructive path. He sees humanity apart from God, distracted and desperate, devoid of joy, full of anxiety, brimming with rage and dealing in treachery. And Isaiah feels the danger of living there. Because though God has promised an end to this, the end has not yet come. And Isaiah is still in it. So another question for you guys at your tables is for the people of God who are living in the city of Tohu, what temptations do you think they face? So again, three minutes and answer the following question.
Okay, take 30 more seconds. Finish up your last thought there. All right, continuing on. Isaiah writes, The floodgates of the heavens are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is violently shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They'll be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They'll be shut up in prison, be punished after many days. The sun will be dismayed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders with great glory. So though we cannot see an end to this curse, right, to the devastation that the city of the world, the city of Tohu causes, God does promise that there is going to be an end to the madness. That the day will come when he will fully reveal himself, that the powers above and below that have caused this devastation will be punished. And above all, God is going to reign as king over his people. And when that day comes, his brightness will outshine the brightness of both the sun and the moon. And to this, again, Isaiah responds. But a change has happened. Because the first time he responds, his focus was upon the world. And it led him to despair. But this time, he fixes his eyes on the God who promises an end. And the change is noticeable. This is Isaiah 25, 1 through 5. It says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect Faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. And like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners. As heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. So when Isaiah finally puts his gaze on God, he realizes first that God is perfectly faithful. And that God will always do and accomplish what he has promised. And this finally allows Isaiah to worship. Because his eyes off the devastation of the city... Isaiah now sees not only how perfectly faithful God is, but how capable and caring he is as well. And even the strong and the ruthless, those who have threatened God's people, are in awe of God. But not simply because, or they do not simply honor God because he has overthrown the city of the world, but actually because of what follows. Because despite the attempts of the ruthless, 
God has been a refuge to the poor and the needy and the weak in their trouble. And though the ruthless are like a fierce storm beating down a wall or are like searing heat in a desert, God stills all their shouting as simply as a cloud can shade the sun. Because you see, in the city of Tohu, the poor, the needy, the weak are the ones to suffer most. Because in a world where everyone decides what is right and wrong for themselves, the strongest and the ruthless are the ones who are going to rule. And so the weak, the poor, and the needy are abused to make the more powerful comfortable. And yet what we find is that God, unlike the ways of the world, exercises his power for the helpless, not out of selfishness. And then we see the full extent of God's selflessness at a different feast, one so unlike the groaning despair that the city of Tohu tries to, to put on. And so here then is the full exercise of God's power. And here now we come to the table. This is Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trust in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And so God, in his power, sets a table. And it's a table laden with the best food and the finest drinks. And it's a table he offers for all people. You see, God even offers this feast for the people living in the city of Tohu, that they might abandon its destruction that they might leave its feast of groaning, despair, fear, and frustration, and that they might know joy with him at his table. And at this feast, God promises three things. First, that he's going to swallow up death. And I hope you catch the delicious irony in that. Because death, which has swallowed up humanity since our beginning, is finally going to be swallowed up itself. And God is so much more powerful than death that he can devour it to even save his enemies. Second, God is going to wipe away the tears from all faces. That there is going to be real comfort and there's going to be real peace and that God promises to do this personally. Like a parent comforting their child, God is going to comfort each who comes to him, lowering himself face-to-face, -face, with tenderness, with compassion. And thirdly, God promises to remove the disgrace of his people, right? the disgrace of having suffered through and living in this city of Tohu. And so at this feast, because of God's power, we find that there is disgrace, or there is instead of disgrace, honor, and instead of tears, joy, instead of death, life. 
And for those who trust in God, these things are certain. As Isaiah says, the Lord has spoken. However, we are not quite done yet because there is a caveat to this feast. And again, it is uncomfortable. Isaiah 25, 10 through 12 says, the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down in the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground to the very dust. Okay, first, that's, that's gross. Let's, let's be honest. And second, why poor Moab? Now, in the earlier section of oracles against the various nations around Judah, Moab is actually highlighted very significantly. In fact, it takes two chapters, chapters 15 and 16. And the thing that becomes very apparent about Moab is her pride. She's known for it. She's famous for it. And it's why she's going to be judged. And so I think what Isaiah is doing here is that he uses Moab first to represent prideful humanity. And second, he uses Moab to remind us that this fate of not coming to God's table is going to happen to real people. And as you work through these verses, you can see Moab's problem at work. First, God's hand rests on this mountain, but Moab stays in their place or in their land. It's the idea that they have refused to come to the table that God has set. That they are content in the ways of the city of Tohu. And then even after being trampled down like straw in poo, their response is to then try to swim themselves out of this mess, which is gross. (laughs) And that's a good picture for pride, right? God, of course, is not impressed, no matter how cleverly they can swim their way through poo. And so he lets them suffer the fate of the city of Tohu. And so here's the warning at the very end of this chapter, is that pride has no place at God's table. Now, there, there's a lot in these chapters, and we've skimmed through them. But what does this mean for us today, thousands of years after Isaiah has written this message? How do we today live in the city of unmaking or chaos or tohu? I think there are two things that have stood out to me through these chapters that are going to define how we as the people of God are called to live today. Hope and humility. So first, hope. This city of Tohu did not just appear in the last 10 years. It did not appear even in this generation, or the generation before, or in the 20th century. See, the city of Tohu is as ancient as humanity itself, and the people of God have always struggled to live in it. What we are facing today is nothing new. It may look different than it has in the past, But our ancient brothers and sisters have faced similar. And to be honest, they have faced quite a bit bit worse than what we face today here in America. And yet God has always brought his people through. 
And our hope continues to be found not in ourselves, but in the promises that God has made. That one day this broken world will be healed, that the powers of unmaking of chaos are going to end, and all that will remain is going to be good, beautiful, and true. And God promises to do this personally. And he promises too that in the end, we are going to party at his table, no longer threatened by the shadow of death, no longer ashamed, no longer mourning. And it's to him that we hold on to. Because Isaiah says, as he looks to God, God is perfectly faithful. Second thing is humility. Because as Isaiah warns through Moab, pride has no place at God's table. Because pride rejects reality. Pride alters what is good. Pride play acts at being God and rejects relationship with him. And pride is going to keep you in your own place outside the kingdom of heaven. And yet the other danger for us today is that our pride may also keep others from coming to God's table as well. It's interesting that when Isaiah has his focus on the city, his eyes are also on himself. Woe is me, woe is me, I'm withering away, etc., right? But when his eyes actually are fixed upon God, he not only sees the hope that he has, but he also recognizes that there is a feast coming for all people. It seems that even in the church today, we have normalized seeing people as enemies to be destroyed rather than as persons who need to be rescued. And so will we, in our self-righteousness, in our pride, prevent people from coming to Jesus because we are so bent on winning, that we are so bent on gloating over our political victories or blasting those who think differently than us or demonizing others so that people know that we are better. Like, do we not recognize that God's table is a table for all peoples? So we cannot get in the way of those needing to escape from the city of Tohu simply because we need to justify ourselves. So to live in these days as the people of God have lived in them for countless years, we need to hold on to hope and we need to live humbly. So the last question for you guys at your tables is this. How do we hold on to hope and humility as followers of Jesus who are still living in the world today? Again, three minutes. It's not going to be enough time to start the conversation.
Okay, take 30 more seconds. Okay, wrap up your last thought there. So one last thing. As, as I have been spending time in these two chapters, uh, there's something that's been haunting me in the back of my mind. I don't know if it's directly connected, so I'm gonna throw it out as a possibility. See, hundreds of years after Isaiah wrote this message, Jesus, in one of his teachings, is going to say this. This is from John 6, starting in verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. You can see why I'm haunted. People thought Jesus was crazy when he said that. And in fact, many of his disciples actually left him. And yet, I wonder if Jesus actually is referring back to this feast of Isaiah 25. That this feast actually is looking forward to Jesus offering his body and his blood on the cross for us. That his body is the best of foods and that his blood is actually the finest of wines. And that through him offering himself as this feast, we find that death is swallowed up. We find that God has actually prepared a path to the endless feast at his table for all peoples and to every person should they come to Jesus where there's going to be no more fear no more death and where God himself will wipe away all our tears that in place of chaos and in the in place of the unmaking of sin we are going to find actually there is ample space at the table of God let's pray Father thank you for that you are a source of hope in a world that is hopeless. That you are perfectly faithful and though it is hard to see an end to the craziness that we find ourselves in, that you have shown that you are good and we can trust you, not just in what you have done for the people of Israel, but what you have supremely done through Jesus in offering him as a feast for us. Would you... Help us to hold on to this hope. Would you help us to live humbly before you in this world today so that all might know they are welcomed at your table. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.